Hi, Jeremy. Hi, Raphael. What's going on? This uh, this podcast is going on. <laughs> I I was curious before we get into the movie. Um, did you start making a very uh, pro setup for video conferencing? And uh, I mean, like a cool physical background and an SLR camera and a, a lav mic on your mm-hmm. on your clothing or something like. Yeah. Yeah, I've tried all of those things. The lav mic, no, I have not done that yet. That's an interesting one. Uh, but the problem is, so I did an SLR camera setup, and it's just like a lot of artifice all around you, and it's not comfortable to do calls that way all day long. Like, it's like a TV interview. Um, but what I've been doing instead is a lot of augmented reality using Snap Camera. So okay. like, And then I started writing my own filters for it. And so then, like, I'll do, like, you know, whatever I'm doing at work, I sometimes curate the filters for... Do, do you have, like, different characters? And then if it's a <laughs> serious meeting, you're... The... Yeah, like, we had a, we had a really difficult week, and it, I remember I did a rainbow over cl- dark clouds and stuff like that. But, um, yeah, typically just play with it. There have been times where it doesn't feel appropriate, though, where you're like, hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> should, does, like, yeah, like, does a background... There should, there even... should not be glitter on my, yeah. coming out of my ears. Yeah, yeah. like, yeah, it, it, sometimes it feels like it, it intersects uh, or blocks sincerity. Uh, what, do you, do uh, you have, does anyone do black and white in their video? No, but that, that would be a, a grand gesture. And maybe just with, like, one piece of the scene in color like <laughs> just like yeah. just like just a red lipstick black and or... white is is very flattering mm-hmm, mm-hmm. well there's that like pimp- pimples as much and things like that i mean zoom has like this touch-up thing built in which just basically kind of blurs your face yeah yeah but there's something about black and white that's kind of flattering and that more than uh, mm-hmm. digital makeup i think but yeah yeah, or you could do like a '90s video. It's high contrast, black and white with grain, and you know. And oh, you had strain. the '90s music videos where they always had a ring light around the camera, and everybody had a circle in their eyes from the the light. Yeah, it had to look bad. <laughs> there was a period in, in music video making. I'm not talking about like your like sort of Cunningham or like Gondry yeah, stuff, yeah. but like. There was a period of like, you know, watch a prodigy music video like from 1995 or something like that. And it's uh, it's like all the colors oversaturated and the contrast has been pushed past 100. Like and then they're like, it, I, I don't know, the the transition effects or whatever was like they're jammed together, like, you know, some page peel with a, a water droplet falling <laughs> to, the, to the video image. Like, yeah, it was a very like, creative time. <laughs> I, you say creative, but it was like actually, I would I would say it was more like around defaults or templates. Like, you know, it was like, oh, there's like ten effects. Let's just combine them in interesting ways. Yeah, but it, I think it's all about being a teenager. Yeah, that's true. Well, I mean, I remember back then. Uh, I, my parents still talk about it because uh, this is like real evidence of you know the privilege that I grew up with. Um, but like, they still talk about how I. They, they bought this new computer for me that could do video editing. It had like video inputs. It was a Mac computer and it was $10,000, which is a huge amount of money, obviously, even today. Yeah. yeah. And I had been like, I was like, no, this is the future, mom and dad. Like, this is an investment and an investment well, in my in, future. In, in a way, this is how you're making your money now. Like, 
imagine if they had said no and it's like instead of this you should do chores and chop wood and you would have gone down that career route like well, it was the, the biggest, investment did pay off biggest single purchase of my life you know like outside yeah. of the the mortgage that i now have but like honestly like yeah but that's not a purchase that's a loan <laughs> yeah yeah so they they did that and that was their way they had this philosophy of if if they if it's like if the if our children like something and it's like not drugs <laughs> and alcohol then we'll like we'll go we'll we'll see what we can do but they still resent it's, this it's so funny how you see it because like most kids would ask for can i get a motorcycle or a car or anything and you're like i want this uh, extra good computer and it seems like a no-brainer it's like if Mark Zuckerberg, when he was 12, asked his parents, can I have a computer? Yeah, that was an investment that paid off. I don't know. I think that it was, it was just really, really expensive. I, don't, I still don't think it makes any sense. But it was the height of... I think of the way you think about money sometimes is <laughs> too close to... You, you have a norm of what's normal, yeah. but you don't really look at your own wallet. So you're like, oh, this is tax deductible. We made this much this year. It's actually better if we have a write-off. Uh, yeah, yeah, they did all those itself. things. They had a business that yeah. they could do that with. But, yeah. but so saying, I'm not saying if you don't need it, but you became a video artist. So yeah. It, like <laughs> like if, if someone had bought Mozart a piano, would you say, like, ooh, you're spoiled? Well, I, I brought it up because the, fun, the things I did with it were ridiculous. Like I did <laughs> essentially, like I remember I did, uh, I would do these videos for high school um, for, my, for classes, and I did one... Um, that was like a recreation of uh, like a, a Shakespeare play, but like in modern times. But we just like made it a music video. Remember, there was this Blur. Remember the band Blur? Yeah, they had like a music video where they they ran down a hill in shopping carts. Um, yeah, so we went yeah, and like that. stole shopping carts and like somehow we made this a Shakespeare scene. And we like, and and then we recorded it and then I edited it and of course I made it look like the Blur music video. But then I also yeah, I, simultaneously... I did the same. We, we had a video camera. We recreate the, the Beastie Boys sabotage video with our friends. Mm. Yeah. And this was like King Lear meets Blur meets Schindler's List. Because then the, the next scene is like King Lear. And I've like made it all black and white, except for the daffodils in the scene or, like, or, or the Frisithia, I can't remember, are like yellow. And uh, this was like the state of the art effect that I could do on this new computer. And... Uh, I unveiled it, I remember, in class, like it was some kind of masterpiece. <laughs> like, it was so bad, though. Uh, it, it's so funny because, it, it, to me, uh, investing in, in uh, things that would drive your children towards creativity or science seems like a, a very desirable outcome. Yeah. Like, stimulating your children to be creative or scientific. Like, who wouldn't want that? And, of course, you don't have to waste money, but... Mm -hmm. It's it's funny to me. Everybody I know, like when the new iPhone comes out, everybody's like, "I don't need it. It's fine. I don't need." It. And they go on this <laughs> self-deprecating rant for hours to say, "I don't need it." Yeah. And then and then like, oh, uh, my niece wants this, or my cousin wants this, or we're going here for a family celebration, and I'll treat the family to a nice cabin, and it's only a thousand bucks. It's not that bad. Yeah. And then spending a thousand bucks on a phone that you use twelve hours a day seems like a luxury. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When, when, let's say that the next iPhone has LiDAR and has a lot of new AR possibilities, which would be relevant to you. And I know you still go in your head and tell yourself why you don't need it. Oh, no, it. if it has LiDAR, I definitely will, will want it. But um, yeah. there, there's an iPad with LiDAR right now, and it's pretty awesome. Um, yeah, yeah, but then having it in your pocket seems... Uh, yeah. 
the next step. And I've st- yeah, I, I'm doing more and more stuff for my phone. I'm actually right now I'm trying to consider whether I should upgrade a laptop. This is like super boring conversation, but also probably the conversation our listeners love, which is like, yeah, should you God. upgrade your MacBook? Because <laughs> well, there's a new graphics card that came out for the MacBook Pro, and if you haven't, you know, years. if you haven't given up on Apple yet and switched over to a PC, then for the 16 inch MacBook Pro, there's this new. Uh, Radeon 5600M um, graphics card. It's like 75% faster. Has this new type of memory and more bit, like twice the bandwidth. Um, and I, I'm pretty excited about it because I'm I'm on like a 2016 MacBook Pro. The first time they redesigned it with the Touch Bar, like yeah. right now, that's what yeah. I'm using. And it was that. so disappointing. I think we did a whole podcast episode about how disappointing yeah. it was. With like, the bad keyboard. Yeah, like the the yeah the keyboard's actually already been repaired once. But the worst part was just that the graphics performance didn't actually was equal to my three-year-old computer from what would have been from like 2013. And so like, yeah, I still have one from 2013. So I haven't actually seen a performance increase in computing since 2013. It's like my childhood self is dying. Computers are in a weird spot because my, my, uh, I bought the best one in 2013. I thought, okay, I'll just max it out and then it'll last long. Mm -hmm. So it has. And, it's 2.8 gigahertz, and now the base clock for a lot of the new processors is lower than that, which is fine if you have multi-threaded apps, but most apps aren't that optimized. <laughs> and so in the real life, if you're running Chrome, the old computer might be better than the new one And in the real world. So, yeah, the, the Moore's Law is not as cool as it... You remember in the 90s, like a yeah. year of computing would be like five times better. Yeah, yeah, there was a, there was a space race kind of moment. There was Moore's Law was doing the doubling. Every I mean, year. I really remember making NetArt and every two years, like, oh, it runs so much smoother now and it's possible. And, mm-hmm. and now it's just kind of flat. I read that it's like the doubling of performance is not every two years now. It's more like every five to to six years. So it's yeah, just but, slowed down. But now it's more also is your software taking advantage of the new processor because otherwise it might run better on the old process. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of optimizations that happen. I, I feel like if yeah. we if we listen to this conversation in ten years though, we'll be laughing out loud. We'll be like <laughs> what fools. <laughs> yeah, that's we'll, see, a- we'll see. We'll see. It's very funny also that software just keeps getting more inefficient. So even though the computers get faster it you don't get shit done faster. Well, tomorrow is a WWDC conference, which uh, yeah. I'll be excited yeah. to to watch live. I love watching those kinds of th- streams live, and they're expected to announce an ARM based yeah. laptop. And uh, for our listeners, what that means, ARM is like what I never hear anyone talk about is that they basically want or not a laptop, but it will be an ARM based computer. Yeah. yeah, the same one. I feel like they make so much on the App Store on iOS and on the Mac you can sideload or you could just buy directly from software vendors. Mm-hmm. Of course they want to lock that down just as much and charge the rent. Yeah. I I mean the problem I, I still I, I've started doing more and more stuff for the phone, but the problem I still have is that like it has to go through kind of the Apple um you know, the Apple kind of jury I was I, you you referred me you to You mean it. if you want to make an an app. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and and even like if you want to get into another app, like one thing I realized recently is I could develop for Snapchat like through the lenses. You can do the same thing for Instagram through Spark Studio, but on Snap it's like, or it's not called Spark Studio, but Spark. And then on on Snapchat it's called Lens Studio, and Lens Studio is actually a really sophisticated AR platform now. So you can like 
there was an exciting release last week where it's doing it does you can do machine learning within it like it can like do foot tracking now like you can you can have it detect what you know like whether you know you have your glasses on or not like there's all this kind it's of it's almost stuff. like you're advertising capitalism and you're saying that yeah am i <laughs> yeah it's <laughs> like oh the 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 most commercial yeah. platform not the indie artist but like the the most commercial platform is the making the coolest stuff yeah it's weird we're in a weird state of affairs net right now where like all of the platforms like um like social media platforms have become platforms on top of platforms so they're like on top of apple there's like snap and facebook and they've created like new uh kits for artists to build content stack. yeah and so the cultural stack is like super complex but they need content so they're like a friend of mine works for Netflix. It always seems like it, the product is bad when they need artists to fix it. Well, you know, that, that means. Yeah, <laughs> this is the segue, yeah. actually, maybe, because like the movie yeah. this week, uh, this is Spinal Tap. Um, I just wanted to mention at the outset that there's a pending like or there, there's a lawsuit that just got settled or I guess like it, less than a year ago between uh, the band, the, the members of the cast and um, and production team and the studio, but it's for $400 million. That's how much they're owed because... For o- the merchandising? Yeah, for over 35 years, they were paid a total of like $175 for the merch and music rights. Um, and so... It, yeah, because the-, the band became a phenomenon that people took seriously. Yeah, so they never got paid for any of those music sales or anything. So... Um, yeah, ultimately, like they're owed like half a billion dollars, which I find like quite hilarious. This movie is well, like you, you watch the movie and you, but once you start reading about everything around it and how it was made, it's like it's a it's a it created a whole genre, and then it they, they played festivals, and then people wear the t-shirts, and then people thought it was a real band. And yeah, I don't know where to start. Yeah. I mean, it, I really enjoyed rewatching it. Um, well, let, let let's start with uh, that. We watched this after coming out of a political trauma and that we're still in. Mm-hmm. And I just felt like let's have a movie that doesn't address any of that. It's just silly. Mm-hmm. And then as I was watching it, I was like, oh, boy, there's all this stuff in here that you're not allowed <laughs> no, anymore. No, you can't. That is, yeah. that is not okay. And I'm going to get the... But I want to sing Jeremy's Big Bottom. Big Bottoms. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Big Bottoms. Talking about bottoms. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, so th- was it, uh, we were talking about, there's certain types of comedy that don't age well, but I really enjoyed it still. I thought it aged quite well. In fact, even yeah. in the in the credits, there's actually, um, there's like a bunch of offcuts, because they actually shot 100 hours of, of film yeah. for this film. So there's tons of like great... Um, so, so we have to introduce the movie a little bit to people who've never seen okay, it. Okay, but I just want to say, in the credits, they actually asked the, the band like, you know, most of your fans are white. Do you believe you're racist? And they're like, well, we're not racist. No, no, no. And anyways, it, it did still, still seem relevant. Yeah, it, it also, it also. there's a moment where they have the record cover that is very sexist, and he's like, what's wrong with being sexy? He's <laughs> 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 <It's> a sexist. Just <laughs> oblivious. And yeah. then they're like, oh, but the other band, you know, another band's like uh, album did well, and the cover was okay because like they were, they were, uh, Tied up, and he's like, being made fun uh, yeah, of, yeah. Maybe if you were tied up, <laughs> oh, we should oh. put up such a fine line be- between between the uh, what is it, uh, dumb and clever. <laughs> but it, it, it did make me think the movie's already quite old, and uh, kids grew, grow up with a very different type of music now. Mm-hmm. And it, it's funny. I remember my parents were really into Laurel and Hardy, 
mm. and Charlie Chaplin, and they didn't grow up with that. That was before their time. But uh, there is this sort of uh, with comedy or any kind of movie. Like you, if you would watch the original Scarface movie, it's not scary or thrilling anymore. And maybe the one with Al Pacino is can still go for ten years. Mm-hmm. But at some point, movies become so old that the, uh, it's more historic and. Uh, Right, the context around you know, it has it, changed so Maybe much. what I mean is, if, if you see pictures of people over 100 years old, it's very hard to know if they were attractive or not. They're just like, it's, they're not, it's so far from you. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that makes sense. No, I mean, the, context changes. Is what, and, you know, like a, yeah. an example might be like, you know, Gone with the Wind just got pulled from, you know, everyone's, uh, all the screening apps, right? Because yeah, I've of, never seen it. Well, you know, considered a classic film, but like also embedded with tons of racism, right? So I think like it's hard for something to age well. However, I do. But not just, I I don't mean directly that Mm -hmm. they say stuff that you can't say anymore in the Mm -hmm. overturned window and all this, but also just uh, if you watch Laura and Hardy now, I I don't think the political angle is the problem. Well, I would disagree because I have you watched Isle of Lucy? It's still funny, it's still hilarious. Okay, okay. But what about like, yeah, Charlie Chaplin is still great, huh? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. that honestly, that that gets me to the physical comedy space. But like, some things are are just universally funny and will remain so. And and so in this this film, if we just set up the context for it, is um, it it follows a, a British rock band, or would you call them a metal band? I, I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Even though it didn't seem like they they were singing such hardcore songs, but anyway. No, no, but the the aesthetic, the the clothing and the skulls and the fire and the, yeah, yeah, and the umlaut it, it was over a, the a, end. an era of ridiculous heavy metal, with a sort of decadent era. Apparently, the umlaut over the end was someone's idea, but they can't remember. The, none of the team can remember <laughs> whose idea but, it was. Uh, maybe what's interesting to say is Rob Reiner was the director, and he was an actor first, so he he's known as uh, the son-in-law from All in the Family mm-hmm. and other things, and then. In, the cast is kind of, you keep seeing them and you're like, where have I seen them? And like the bass player is a voice actor for The Simpsons. Yeah, like Harry, Harry Shearer. And, yeah. yeah. And then uh, the, the the singer of the band was in Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. He's Michael the McCain. brother. Of, yeah. And a, lot yeah. Of, and a lot of other kind of comedy movies, but yeah. And, and the Air Force bass player. Uh, officer, he's in in a lot of other mockumentaries. The best in show, oh, yeah. Other ones. What's his name? Um, what is it? Phil his name? Driver or something? Uh, no, Fred Willard. Fred, Fred Willard. Yeah, yeah. Fred he, Willard's he has this hilarious. very funny control of his voice, which just makes him sound like a very uh, yeah normal. I, guy. I was about to do an impression, but like yeah, he's yeah. like I did see an interview with him, and he's like, you know, I did this, uh, I did the film, and I'm like, and uh, I wasn't really sure if I should do it, like you know, I had a like a, an appointment with my mom later in the day, and so it's like, yeah. But he so, also said, I, I keep being cast as a square, and I yeah. don't really feel that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, but he's so good at what he does. But but so it. it uh, and then of course, the, Christopher the Fran Drescher from the Nanny. Oh yeah, Fran Drescher. Yeah. So yeah. it's it's kind of a, it. The movie feels a bit like a bad documentary. Yeah, so the idea is, you know, they filmed it as a documentary. They actually filmed it that way. There's no script. You know, Christopher Guest gets... Maybe uh, it it started as a sketch. It almost feels like an extended SNL sketch. Well, it did start as a sketch on a a show in 1979 called TV Show. Or The TV Show. But so they were selling the movie, and then they went to the studios, and they're like, 
the setup is that we're going to go really deep and think about the history of the band, but we're not filming that. So we're like, they were brothers. They started writing songs when they were eight. Then at first they were in a folk band, and then their drummer died, and the drummers. And so they created this whole history that then everybody was in the same page. It's like we've had the same shared history, and then just roll camera and do interviews and follow them on tour and just see what yeah. happens. But yeah. said a lot of times, uh, Rob Reiner is pretending to be Marty DeBergi, the documentary filmmaker. Yeah. So he's acting, but he's also directing. So th- th- In the film itself, It has this yeah. weird meta reel. And he said so many times he would ask them questions. Like he sits down with the guitar player and he's playing this classical music on the piano. And he's like, yeah, I've been working on these melodies and I'm really inspired by Mozart and Bach and... He's like, oh, what's the title? And he's like, uh, Lick My Love Pump. <laughs> and he's just yeah. very serious. And he, like, all the time, everyone, the, the camera, everyone around it had to really try not to crack up and burst out laughing because nobody knew what was coming. Well, I think the the talent, like Christopher Guest um, especially, is, and sa- same thing with Harry Shearer and, and Michael McKean, they're really good at that. Like if you've seen other Christopher Guest films. They're very like, serious in the movie. Yeah, but even if you see interviews with Christopher Guest, he will he will be in character in the interview. Even though he's not supposed to be, he'll develop yeah. like a new <laughs> a new satirical thread. Because yeah. I saw... It's just, they just keep coming up with storylines. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But apparently... So they're writing as, as they're acting. They did map it all out in great detail. Like, so apparently that was where a lot of the effort into the movie went, which is they mapped out the well, backstory. It, it, it's funny... The singer is also in Kirby Enthusiasm, and Kirby Enthusiasm also feels that way. Like it, Larry David would tell the actors the premise, like, "Oh, it, we're waiting for a dentist appointment," but mm-hmm. he wouldn't give them dialogue. Yeah, yeah, and so the, the, I mean, the premise or the background is it's all improvised, right? Like the premise is understood, the backstory is understood, but all of the actual action, there's no script for it, there's no screenplay. That was a new idea um, for yeah. for filmmaking, obviously in television. Sketch comedy existed prior to that time. The Second City as like a sketch comedy kind of um, in Saturday Night Live already existed. I think the Beatles also kind of played with it. I was looking up the history of the mockumentary and I think Fellini played with it, but they really, uh, this movie really set a template of comedy mockumentary that then was used in The Office and Kirby Enthusiasm. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. And I think the other thing that was interesting is when this came out, a lot of people didn't understand it. So they got a, it was it was hard to get funded. While it was being made, well, the people studio would, was... They would show it to a test audience and they would be like, what's this terrible band? Why did you choose to make a documentary <laughs> yeah. about them? Yeah, And yeah. no one understood it was a, it, it was a setup. Yeah, and I, and I actually find that not at all hard to believe, having been in character for most of my life. People oh, yeah. still, people still think that you know when I meet them, they're like, "Oh my god, I had no idea, like that you were not that character." And it, I had the same problem a lot of times in in the when I would switch cities or make new friends, and I have a sense of humor where the the first year of school of art school, we got a tour of galleries in The Hague, and it was terrible art on the wall, like really undeniably terrible, and. I was there with my new friends, and I'm like, could you guys leave me alone? I really need to take this in. <laughs> and it was a joke, but la- later on they told me they were laughing behind my back. It's like, what is this idiot? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I actual gallery in Berlin that I'm working with right now saw me do a show in Berlin 10 years ago and thought it was serious. <laughs> <laughs> and it you was an intent- the world with I had AI. done intentionally bad performance in a show, and like, and no one in Berlin got it. And I was like, why is my career so flat after this big event? <laughs> He's like, I thought you were an idiot. 
And uh, well, he's like, I, I always I, I, thought about <laughs> one of the things that's dangerous when you uh, insert comedy into art is there's a fine line. There's art that makes you feel stupid because it's too complex. So um, you could present art and say, okay, if you didn't read these 15 books, there's no way you could read this artwork. Mm hmm. And then there's art on the other side of the spectrum that is just flat out like, I like chicks, so I made a painting of hot chicks. Mm -hmm. You know, and there's a spectrum between that. And the the sweet spot is where the person still feels they can get it, but they feel a lot of people didn't get it. Yeah, but so when you say the person, it, that that's the thing I've always struggled with in in terms of doing my own writing and. Um, well, the the person that you want to address is probably over fifty years old and has money. For, like if if you if you want to think strategically. Oh no. Yeah, <laughs> I'm doing but, the wrong thing this whole time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but if you if you want to, so that's the whole thing. You want to make someone feel like they're clever, but you don't don't want to intimidate them either. And so it's just, yeah, it's line, a whole game. Line between dumb and clever, so fine, it's a <laughs> fine line, <laughs> such a fine line. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I think in my experience, I, I would take a page out of your book. Is that if it was funny to me, and I actually. Do laugh yeah, at my that's own. The only real I way do laugh at be. my own jokes. I I, I yeah. feel embarrassed, but I'll show my works, and I don't think they're funny to like ninety nine point nine percent of people. Uh, and so, I, the fact that I laugh at them, uh, I still get great pleasure out of watch. I squirm, but I also I laugh. Yeah. Um, I I don't know. Yeah. I love that feeling. I, I, there is. I I feel like it's uh, maybe some people are good at it, but once you start creating towards a goal other than your own curios curiosity. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I would have definitely done it if someone told me like do this and this and you'll make ten million. But I think as soon as you start trying to appease an audience that's not you, it just doesn't come out better. Yeah. So good. this movie wasn't a big hit when it came out, but it did. It did. So it's net, but it's now considered. Um, it's like a in cult. the Library of Congress. It's like considered one of the top movies of all time. It's well, like, it's it's groundbreaking. Yeah, yeah it's, it's groundbreaking. A, it's very new. And and like uh, it's become the kind of the predominant um, form of television and film-based comedy. In fact, even if you don't see a documentary or mockumentary, most films that are comedies are now filmed without uh, much writing, right? So it's like yeah. no scripts. And and, and, and one <clears throat> of the things that's also interesting is how it influenced the heavy metal subculture. Or, and, so it Spinal Tap made fun of rock and roll or hard rock or whatever you want to call it. But... Um, Hard rock is ridiculous to begin with. It's like, I'm on stage, I'm better than you. Yeah. Like, the whole idea of, like, I'm a star, you're the audience, and we're going to have dragons and fireworks, it, it's cool and ridiculous at the same time. And so... Yeah, it's like kind of... A lot of bands watch this movie, and they're like, this is what I feel all the time. Like, I get lost in the stadium on the way to the stage. Uh, the, I think Metallica especially had a lot of eerily real things where they had pyrotechnics accidents and they also after in Did the their movie drummer, they have a drummer spontaneously combust <laughs> yeah you know you know dozens of people dozens of people <laughs> combust each year it's just not widely reported yeah 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 <laughs> no no but but metallica actually made a black album cover after spinal tap like they thought oh that's a great idea yeah yeah because so uh, but there is a there's a the thing in rock and roll is like is this still cool or is it too spinal tap? Like, I mean, I think that's what's great about it. I also, I mean, when I'm doing satire as well, is I, I want to get as close to it being painful. And often what I'll do is I'll think of an idea that I think is cool. 
for like just like great idea like my first i always said was like my first idea whatever comes to mind okay that's what i'm going to do and then i'm going to make fun of it because whatever your natural impulses is probably based on some sort of awkward truth um that's hard to stomach and then yeah. getting that out in the open is the process of making it possible to laugh at it yeah um, that's why i find the idea of, of superficiality very interesting because usually the the most superficial is at the same time the deepest like mm. oh i want to write a love song about the first time i fell in love and the sun was shining and it sounds really superficial but it was also a very intense feeling yeah i mean that's what can make us it uncomfortable for us to be honest right and of it's, course the big bottoms are great so you write a song about <laughs> it the deeper the quicksand the... <laughs> <What's> the <next? laughs> i don't know i can't remember the next line uh, but uh, well, the, I like the other title. Tonight I'm going to rock you tonight. Yeah, or the, one of the best ones I think is Sex Farm on the <laughs> <laughs> working on the sex farm. Working on the sex. But it, farm. it did feel when I was watching it, I'm like, oh, this is really a dad movie. This is the movie where kids are going to be like, oh, that movie's not funny. It's so old. And, and I don't think we'll, so. We'll still be cracking up about it in 30 years. Yeah, I think I think it's a, a classic. I I, lo- I happen to love um, other films that Christopher Guest went on to make, like Best in Show. Yeah, and a mighty yeah. wind, and actually the cast gets together again in Mighty Wind. Um, they play, they are a folk band in the Mighty Wind. I don't know if you've seen that. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah. Well, the uh, backstory of, of Spinal Tap is they had the Thamesmen and what other band? Yeah, they had. Well, there was the, the we were the originals, and then oh, you know, yeah, and then the new originals. But the, there was a band across town that was called the Originals too. So you know, we had to become the new originals, and then they went back and they they became the regulars. They, they, t- they yeah. took it back, and then we could have become the originals again, but instead we became the Thamesmen, and then it was the Matchstick Men. Or but it is funny if you look at the history of someone yeah. like David Bowie. He did go through all those stages. He did yeah, yeah. go like he was in folk band, and then he was in a sort of early rock and roll band and then he became a space character and yeah yeah i mean apparently the movie was inspired by uh, christopher guest was at a hotel uh in la waiting for a friend and a british rock band actually walked in to check in and they're at the like clerk's desk and the manager is like hey uh where's your you know where's your bass guitar and and the the bass the bass guitarist was like my bass guitar. I don't. I don't know. Where is it? I. I don't know. I don't know. And he's like, "Well, you, you must have forgotten it. Forgotten it where? Oh, <laughs> at the airport. I don't know. Is it? Have I forgotten my bass at the airport? Anyway, they went back and forth like that. Apparently, I did a terrible hatchet job of. Well, it. It is very. F- the British accent is uh, sounds so civilized and polite, <laughs> and uh, the idea of rock and roll being debauchery and no rules. It, it's a very funny contrast. Even even if you hear. The Sex Pistols talk to each other. They still sound like they're polite and nice to their parents. And uh, well, I think also like if you've ever, sometimes these um, yeah characters that are based on what are considered like real people in real like honestly you do meet. I mean, people probably meet me and think like, God, I got to make a, a movie about that. How weird that person is. But like when you encounter these exceptional situations in reality, where you might just meet someone that's a little you know from outside your sphere we just assume we're all the same you know and then but there's so many characters out in the world um i almost feel like this you know like we you know we looked at paris was burning and there were lots of characters built into that film too right but it wasn't satirical um so the 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 line between what is satire and what do we accept as just like kind of abnormal and therefore like worth celebrating i don't know it's kind of interesting but in this case i think that's why people also confuse this with potentially reality right because it's not unusual to meet um 
like meet absurdity in reality. I often say like reality is really hilarious. Yeah, but, but I, I think the, the point maybe is that this movie they went so close to reality that a lot of people were confused. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's the newness. Uh, that was the point of this movie, where even the director of photography had shot a few rock and roll documentaries before this, and they were shooting it. And he's like, guys, I thought we were shooting a comedy. This is just like a boring rock and roll documentary. <laughs> yeah, I love the marquees, though. There are like a few points in the movie where it's like, it really hits you over that how ridiculous it is. Obviously the songs and then the marquees at all the shows will be like, puppet show, and then below that, spinal <laughs> It's like, But it's it's so funny. Like uh, That's maybe one of the interesting things of, of a rock show, that the, it's ridiculous and amazing at the same time. Like... Mm-hmm. If you see Rammstein, have you seen footage of their concerts? No, I want you to get into this side of the, you know, your personality because I, I this is I have to admit something I don't know very much about. So for our listeners, Raphael is like a metalhead, I guess is that the term? Yeah, yeah. Tell me, tell uh, yeah, me, tell us but, more. But but when you see something like Rammstein, it's they have over the top stage show. Like they arrive at any concert with maybe fourteen or twenty trucks worth of props. Mm-hmm. I know this band, and is that like the band Guar, where they like have, was that a band, Guar? Yeah, where they have but, like but Guar is not as successful. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. But Guar is not as, but I don't know what's the best example. But well, what happens in a Rumsfeld maybe, show or whatever? Is it Rumsfeld? Sorry? Like Donald Rumsfeld? <laughs> no, Rumstein. <laughs> Rumstein. Okay, oh, you I, don't know about them? No, tell us about I f- that. I feel like you, you, if you would see the show, you would love it so much. You're like, this is better than any art performance. Well, but, great. That's something new we're, we're uncovering. Okay, tell us about a Rumstein yeah, yeah, show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I don't know if it's specifically this, but like Iron Maiden has a character. It's like a skull creature that's called Eddie, and every time it comes out, everybody cheers. Or ACDC has a song, and then they have a uh, a blow up doll of a voluptuous woman, and then they have a song about big. So it's really close to this movie. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, but are they making fun of the premise? Like, have no, they st- they're not. They're dead serious. Mm-hmm. So, but <laughs> I mean, I've seen ACDC play. I thought they were, I, yeah, I thought they were incredible. I do think that they are getting close to being, to acknowledging or winking at, the, like when they're trotting around on stage because they do a lot of trotting and dancing and getting up on top of. Well, the that's what I mean. Like it, it, uh, the guitar player has this thing called the the duck walk, where he just does a solo yeah, and, and jumps up and down, it, it, kind of like Chuck Berry. Yeah, and it's ridiculous. Like if you would, if you'd be like, what would be a cool dance? It doesn't make any sense, but somehow it does make sense that's what interests me like yeah um, it's performative or, or it's like i mean a as opposed to something as opposed to something like joy division where everything's so serious and it makes sense and there's nothing ridiculous about it and and then well, the guy kills himself not doing yeah. anything like joy division was pretty revolutionary for just standing on stage that way though that yeah, that yeah but they was... but they have this sort of very cold approach that there's nothing to make fun of mm-hmm mm-hmm but are you, but tons of people did make fun of uh, Ian Curtis for just being, you know, such a spastic. Yeah, you know, yeah, spastic or like, yeah, like just weird, um, unemotional. I'm trying to think of. I did a, a. This was sort of a performance thing I would do at the end of a lecture. I would show a YouTube movie and then ask people to grab the keyboard and choose the next clip and the next clip, and it would be a conversation in the form of YouTube's instead of talking. Mm, that's a cool idea. And um, it, we did it a few times. And one time I did it in Berlin with all the our peers, all our, the post-internet artists. And everyone was pulling up funny videos, so like face yoga or uh, custom car racing or just like a 
whole night of ridiculous videos. And then I was sitting next to a friend and we were like, what would be the cringiest thing to show right now? And he's like, yeah, like a clip from a Godard movie. <laughs> like at that moment, that would be so uncool. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm trying to think of like, if you think of something of heavy metal and, and also hip hop and EDM and country music where you just have in, insanely grand events that are kind of funny and, uh, uh, and, and wonderful at the same time. Mm-hmm. And then there's contemporary art where you're like, uh, I made a black stone that represents the suffering of all of humanity. Is it, yeah, but I don't think anyone does that anymore, do they? Like, uh, yeah, I, I'm just trying to think of something that is completely unfunny because mm-hmm. this, this movie deals with the unfunny. Well, yeah, I mean, sorry, I shouldn't say anyone. There are there are great artworks that are super serious. So you're, I guess the like line Richard is like Richard Let, Serra. Let's say Richard Serra. You could make a comedy about him. Yeah, or, or like Pollock would be really easy or something like that. Or yeah, Sarah, anyone who does like big macho, big ego, like Coons yeah, would yeah. probably be easy to do a comedy. But in a way, it's it's just as ridiculous as having. Uh, uh, you know what's funny though? Has there been a good a good comedy like Spinal Tap about the art world? I feel like I don't. Yeah, I, uh, I always because Zoolander was such a good movie about the fashion world, mm-hmm. and I don't think anyone made the the, the Zoolander of the art world because. There was one on Netflix with um, Gyllenhaal. Oh, did you see that one? Gyllenhaal. Yeah. <laughs> What's this? What was? No, I didn't see it. What was it called? Oh, yeah, it was pretty bad. Yes. But, and then there was this, the square. That was yeah. pretty. The square was kind of the spinal tap of the art world. Yeah, I haven't seen the square yet. I've been. T- we've talked about it several times. Oh man, maybe we should do that next. Okay, we can really. We can do the square. Like, it, but. Uh, I mean, the whole premise of the square is that they created this safe space in front of the museum, mm-hmm. and and then everything that comes out of it. So he's like, you could say anything here, and then people start saying really inflammatory racist stuff, or or they make a performance that's very offensive, and then he says, well, we don't want to support this, and then everybody's like, are you censoring people? I thought this was about artistic freedom, and mm-hmm. uh, so it has that spinal tap thing. Of, there's no good answer. Okay, well, let's watch that. Um, but yeah. I, I, I do think like another interesting thing to talk about is like you know, improvisation and its role in storytelling. And you know, one of the things obviously about this podcast is we don't really plan. Like we just made the plan for next episode. But um, yeah. Yeah. you know, I think that the conversation—if you tried to script this conversation—would be so, 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 so difficult yeah. to do. Well, it, that makes me think of reality TV where. It's supposedly reality, but it's way more scripted than anything else. Well, apparently, like, so they shot 100 hours of film on the film, right? Um, And then the first cut, and I don't know if this is satire in an interview or not, the first cut of the film was seven hours long. (laughs) Then they did, like, a (laughs) four-hour version. And apparently it took, like, seven months to edit the film. So Rob Reiner said, like, this film was was written in reverse, which I thought was an interesting premise, like... Normally, you do the writing up front, and then the filming takes less time. Yeah, but how how is that in modern reality TV? Well, in modern reality TV, I had a friend who was an editor on a reality TV show, and I did a I did sort of this gonzo journalism thing for a while. It was called Art Stars, and we'd go to openings and we would just shoot uh, improvised situations at the openings. And my my colleague was an art writer, and also kind of a out loud character named Nadja. So she still works for like Vice and does interviews and stuff mm-hmm. like that in Berlin. I'm sure Berlin listeners are, are, are know who she is. 
<laughs> she's like, you would know. Um, but we did it here in Toronto and we would go to openings and like, no matter what, we would make something happen. Um, but sometimes nothing would happen. And we'd ha- we had a reality television show friend who had asked to do the editing and he would do the editing and somehow we would end up with a three minute clip that had a narrative built in that was like, it would have been hard to see that narrative if you had been at the event, but we would like through editing tricks and just through juxtaposition, you know, build that tension. Uh, yeah. I think they can even, for reality TV, you have to sign a waiver and they can put the answer to a different question and completely change the dialogue. And yeah, so you can or we really would like, say stuff that you never said. <clears throat> we do that thing that's now common on YouTube. I think, I can't remember the, what they refer to it on YouTube, but like this kind of ironic style, like self-aware style where you know, you say something wrong and then you do a close cut of the face and then like wink at the camera and then pull back and then like mm-hmm. do like a weird sound or like do, like, do yeah. stuff just to like kind of play with the audience. But what I mean even more is, is if I see reality TV, sometimes it feels like, oh, uh, you get to see, they have a surprise for a person. So the person has to go through the door and there's a puppy or whatever surprise. Mm-hmm. And then you see that the person is not surprised because they had to go through the door three times. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then this movie is kind of the opposite, where they are actors, but it feels like they are surprised when they say Yeah, and the format is mostly, the premise was, you know, get up on stage, perform, and sit down, and and you're going to get be be interviewed. And they didn't know the questions that were going to be in the interview. And so there's a lot of improvising. I think you have to have a real comfort with your cast to do that well, though. So, um, like, well, they spent a year really just becoming the characters and talking to each other. Yeah, and I was gonna say, like, um, I was just without watch- cameras. I think I was just watching the latest um, film before we we got on the podcast. I was like, oh, let's just see what Christopher Guest's latest film was like, which is Mascots on Netflix. And as I was watching it, I was like, this isn't nearly as funny. And it's interesting to see like thirty five years what it's done to the format. But the format was mm-hmm. like so formulaic, you know. Um, and it did seem like, and it was all professional actors. There's some of his like regular cast that's still funny in, um, in, 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 in the new movie, but like the ensemble cast wasn't the same ensemble. It didn't seem like the same comfort was there. It seemed like they were trying to be funny. I think so many of the great lines in Spinal Tap are like, they're not like laugh out loud funny at first. They kind of like build in your mind as uh, funnier and funnier. Or like the best, best scene. I don't know. what. Let's talk about favorite scenes. But my favorite yeah. scene is, and it's only like five seconds, but it's like when they go to get the stone. <laughs> they go to get this. He gets the Stonehenge made as a set prop. And they accidentally write down 18 inches on a napkin instead of 18 feet. And so the set designer designs like an 18 inch Stonehenge. <laughs> And they're like, there's this huge lead up in terms of like the musical performance on stage. The, the, you know, the, the performers don't know that the Stonehenge has been made to be 18 inches instead of 18 feet tall. And it's like, imagine in the time of darkness, there was a place, <laughs> the Druids gathered. Well, then they gathered. get the tiny dancers to yeah, make the and, Stonehenge And then this bigger. like tiny Stonehenge, like... <laughs> With little people next to it. And then, <laughs> and then small people But, <laughs> but then in the documentary... <laughs> There's a similar scene where they, they're in these weird pods and as oh, if they're yeah. born from it. And the bass player is stuck. And then later on in the documentary, he's like, 
oh yeah, we really ris- disagreed with... Oh no, this is in interviews after the movie. And he's like, yeah, we were set up, the director made us look bad. Like most of the time I just jumped out of the pod, there was no problem. And he just took the one day it was bad. Oh, the, yeah, the, 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 the making of kind of... Because they did, so they after the film, they also did lots of interviews. And this is actually something to talk about, which is like, they did interviews on like Letterman and other TV character. shows. In char- but they did them in character. And what I think is interesting about that is like that too is also now something we take for granted. Like when, you know, when Will Ferrell comes on to like, you know, a late night show, we expect him to be... As the guy from Anchorman. Yeah, we expect him to be like Goulet or whomever, like whatever, Ron Burgundy. Ron Burgundy. And yeah. we take for granted that that wasn't like, it wasn't normal for people to show up on character outside of a film. Uh, that was also something that this that this cast started doing. Um, which I love, by the yeah, way. Yeah, and because most film interviews are so boring, they basically boil down to like, "Oh, I loved working with this team. The director's so nice. We had such a good time." Oh yeah, tell us this about how very you, important how, how you all, yeah, tell us about how you almost missed like the casting call because you were stuck <laughs> in traffic. You know, it's like you just <laughs> yeah. like that. Oh, I wouldn't and believe it. It's just really yeah. nice. And, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all. Small I mean, one one of the things about rock and roll itself and this movie is that it is really fun to be wrong and blunt and and, uh, uh, say stupid stuff like oh that's sexist and it's like yeah it's great to be sexy yeah well I think what a normal film interview is always just really nice well I think the premise is like the reason the comedy stands up is that they weren't making fun of others we've talked about this before they're making fun of themselves and I think that's always the best like the self-deprecation is such a it's such an effective form of release and comedy because so much of what we do in the world is we evaluate one another based on assumptions right and when our assumptions are both validated but then also like over like kind of turned on their head because they're made fun of it's such a diffusing or you know kind of dismantling activity i think personally like i i I find it thrilling and i've always used that to dismantle my own my own ego and my work but it's because like i grew up with a pretty in my family anyway I'm viewed as this like egocentric bastard, <laughs> like who's like, oh, what there goes Jeremy. No, but like this has followed me around into my work life. Like there goes Jeremy with the microphone, just like wanting to be the center of attention. Oh, okay. And so yeah. as soon as I get a microphone in my hand, people don't know that I'm actually quite nervous sometimes, but I do enjoy, like there's no greater feeling than making others laugh. And so I think as a matter of like both wanting to be the center of attention, but also recognizing that being the center of attention puts you in a position where people don't like you. There's like a, you know, like I think even with the metal bands that you're talking about, like the performance aspect allows them to be something other than themselves. And therefore it's like an allowable form of, like you can allow praise, you know? Well, one of the tensions in the movie is also that uh, performance is about being outrageous and uh, being being uh, something different than normal life. So you're creating a persona that's, you know, since the beginning of entertainment, you go to the theater to see something that, an exaggeration of your feelings. Mm -hmm. But then when you see behind the scenes that it's an industry and that they do the same thing every night and that it goes (laughs) wrong a lot of times, it's very funny. I think that's one of the tensions of the movie. That's what I mean. It's like, yeah, it's, it's like, you go see James Bond and you're like, wow, he does everything right. He jumps out of a helicopter and he lands on his feet and then he gets the girl and kills the bad guy and et cetera. But then in real life, it's like he had problems with casting and his foot broke in the stunt yeah. and I mean, he got a cold and, yeah. and then the budget fell through. And yeah. And in character, Rob Reiner kind of 
you know, makes fun of that, which is like, for some reason, the band didn't like what I did. They thought, you know, 99.9% of the time they don't get stuck in their alien pods. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they, don't, exactly. they don't get lost backstage. Why did yeah. they show the, the, the hundred, you know, the 99% of the time that they are successful? But um, yeah, and, and I, part of the movie is also. I was just trying to make them look human. Down. <laughs> yeah, it, like they're at the end of the career, or they, yeah, they're I don't they're know, approaching they're forty or something, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. and so the 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 record's not selling as much, and the record company's not as excited, and uh, the the concerts are not selling out, and I mean it, that it, I think anyone who does any kind of artistic expression with an audience, you know that feeling in. You're really excited about your next project, and you're like, oh, everybody's going to love this one. And then it's like, yeah. oh, we yeah. like the previous one more. Yeah, well, I think that's the main thing, which is that I don't think there's anyone that doesn't go, doesn't explore their own ego as a matter of their identity, right? Their value is constantly in question because it's relative to those around them. You know, and we've talked about this on the podcast before, which is like, I, you know, praise often becomes the kind of um, the currency for one's self-worth and then of course that's not sustainable because you're going to have good days and bad days and a lot of times you're going to stumble across a great idea you're not going to be able to conceive of it as a masterpiece ahead of time but we all struggle with this whether we're a rock star or just like a regular individual or and i say regular individual but we're all kind of like we all cast ourselves as like you know, some aspirational, like, who do you want to be? I want to be this, like, by this time. And I do think that social media has brought that closer to the audience at large. Like, maybe before there was more of a difference between audience and star, and now it's this yeah. Andy Warhol reality where everybody's famous for 15 minutes. But Yeah, and, um, and the, the joke I, is that Andy Warhol I remember Andy seeing Warhol an interview didn't... with, with yeah. the, the singer of Iron Maiden, and he's like, yeah, I would be in high school super bored, and it's like, I want to be a star. And he would make all these drawings in his notebook while he's in math class or whatever. He's like, okay, I have a stack of marshals and a dragon and a skull. And then he said, and then we just started going and it just went faster and faster and faster. And he said, you know, when you're, you go on a roller coaster ride and first you have the, the ascendance. So you go up, 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 up till the peak. Yeah. And then he just said, it was like, 10 years of just going down really fast and then it slowed down and you're so confused. Yeah. Like, what now? Yeah. Yeah. And I think like, um, I mean, the point I like to make when I, when I give like my artist talk is like the fact that we, you know, that you want the being famous is actually like, I, I consider it almost like, um, it's a joke in my work. Like, you know, that I'm a famous new media artist, but I think this is my belief that everyone deserves like to feel famous like the idea that there would be an like a hierarchy of importance in the world yeah and also like the example you just shared with me like anyone can go out and be whatever they want to be like that feeling should belong to us all there is a a frustrating part of art making that um the way you see the work changes so much on where it's presented that it really changes the work like you could Mm-hmm. You could argue that um, if you happen to be at the right moment, at the right time, that there will be an energy around you that more people will think with you, shoot better documentation, present it in better spaces, write about it, look deeper at it, look longer at the works, take more out of it, and then you'll feel more energized. And then you can create the works at a bigger scale with better materials. And so I think one of the things of fame is this feeling like, 
if I have fame, I will have a lot of energy and support around. Or that, yeah. that might be the idea. That might not be the reality. But the idea is that success will then bring out your potential. Yeah, my argument would be just that fame should not be, you shouldn't consider it a factor of volume. So like that, that is like a, that's like the traditional idea of fame. The traditional idea of fame is like, how many followers do you have? But I think the truer, and what the internet allows, um, for me anyway, a truer view of fame would be like, I'm doing what I want to do because I like this work. And mm-hmm. I have I have found other people that are supporting me and I'm supporting them. And together, we're doing something different, you know, that... And the, but there's also the idea of, of rivalry and courage, like, yeah. in the sense that you feel you need a certain amount of energy around you that you f- feel you want to continue. I think there's very few people that without any, like, zero audience could just continue. So I... I no, it's true. I do think we both had a lot of encouragement from, from peers and internet audience that gave us the energy to... Because there is a sense of... You need someone. I always think there's a difference between uh, being a hobby athlete or being a hobby artist. And so, a lot of people are hobby athletes. They go jogging or they go cycling, and it's not recorded. Their action is not recorded. So you might be bad at tennis, but have a good time. Mm -hmm. But if you're a bad painter, at the end of the day, you have all these canvases around you with all this proof (laughs) that you. So that's very different. Yeah, I mean, I think like. I would start by saying you need someone to support you. In the case, like from a young age, I think if I go back to my original story, is like my parents were my biggest fans. And, you know, it sounds cheesy, but like having a mother or father that is like, you're doing incredible stuff, they would say that. And I'd be like, I would believe them foolishly, you know, but they were really excited and proud for what I was doing. Well, it's also, it's funny when you're, let's say you're 10 years old. Yeah. And you look at a group of people one of those people will probably be a professional at something. Like, you can already s- compare 10-year-olds and say, like, oh, that would make a great, he or she would make a great lawyer, or he or she is very entrepreneurial, or he or she is very caring. And so it, the, the talent hasn't been uh, fully developed yet, but it's there, and they're going to be grown-ups, and they're going to be in all kinds of uh, different interests. So you can already see in a child, like, this is the direction. And, yeah. Of course, you want to help the, the child. Yeah, there are all kinds of invisible forces that both. Will what, I, what I mean, maybe, is like starting out as an artist, and you see everyone around you, and you compare yourselves to people who are already eighty years old and have had decades of research, and you're like, "I'm not as good as that." But then, uh, you, you still have sixty years to go. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if there's a. that we've talked about that before whether it's like too late or you know i i just turned 40 last year and so and and, uh i know we're roughly the same age but like it was my 39th year was like something like the movie spinal tower was like is this it you know have i am i done like what's the point like after this and well if if you're not having fun then it's hard to motivate yeah but i have to say like this year i've had more fun and been more confident i think than any of the years prior um it's almost like once i got past that that milestone it is really i've heard from some friends of mine who are 10 years older that they went through a midlife crisis and they're like art is stupid i'll I'll just become a fireman that at least that you really save people's lives Kristen was pitching me on being a fire person actually um yeah she said that they do something useful they only work seven days a month (laughs) 
<laughs> and then I said to her, like, well, what kind of life is that? And she's like, well, you could be an artist the other day. So I was like, well, you know, I can still be an artist regardless of whether I'm up, you know, yeah. fighting fires. But yeah, I think like it, it's natural to um, to doubt yourself. And, and that's what I think the characters yeah. represent in the film. And that's why you but can identify one of the, with them. The big differences of uh, visual artists usually work on their own. And- and then bands always have this conflict and egos and so that was part of the story in Spinal Tap uh, the singer and the guitar player are the two big egos mm-hmm. there's an interview with the bass player at some point and he's like yeah we have these two crazy talented people in the band and it's like fire and ice and I'm kind of lukewarm, like lukewarm water <laughs> in the middle yeah <laughs> Do you think yeah. that it's? I mean, back to like bands though. Like bands now play into their. But it's like 70s, Mick Jagger like. and Keith Richards. They they don't like each other. They they play together, but they hate each other. But aren't they like it, in their? They're in their sixties or seven. They're in their seventies now. They must be right, and they're yeah, still playing. But they still hate each other. And, and there's a really cringy documentary about Metallica where they have band therapy. And it's <laughs> <laughs> well, if you're working that long with you know people are going to grow apart i can't believe that they play the same songs for 40 50 years that's just in i think that's the devil's way. deal where you're like mm. you're like oh man i really want to be famous and it's like okay but you'll have to play this song for the rest of your life <laughs> or maybe it's something like i heard uh, an interview and i think it was uh, michael mckean was saying like there's a scene where there's a guitar solo where Christopher Guest is doing a guitar solo and that's his favorite scene, you know, with the violin being rubbed on the guitar. He's playing the guitar with his feet. And <laughs> yeah, and um, yeah, exactly. And he's like, I love that scene. A, I'm not on, I'm not on stage, so I don't have to worry about whether I'm being funny. But it's like, get, he's like, it's like getting into a warm bath. And I've often said <laughs> that, like, but like, just a feeling of being in that moment and just enjoying and you know, feeling it and re-seeing that and reliving it over and over again. The warm bath thing is is one way you can think about something familiar, which is like, it's like a yeah. feeling of the womb, <laughs> something like. Well, I think Matisse said something. He's like, I, I want my paintings to feel like you're sitting in a velvet couch. Mm, yeah, like just a feeling of comfort and ease, you know? Yeah. And I think that, you know, I think when you're watching great comedy, sometimes it can feel that way. Like I, I mentioned Rushmore that we watched. I used to watch that film like every year and I, it felt the same way. Like I felt comfortable watching it. Um, we've watched actually uncomfortable films on this podcast and comfortable ones. But like one of the movies I used to watch over and over again, but I don't think it's comfortable anymore to watch is Anchorman. Um, but when I watch it now, I'm like, ooh, like there's like a lot of stereotypes and things in that that are not funny. Um, and so I think that's yeah, one of the things... I, 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 I remember seeing a documentary about comedy and like comedy in the 50s was all jokes of like two Irishmen walk into a bar and (laughs) it it was a period where it was more like telling jokes more than a personal story. Yeah, yeah. Like the classic sort of smoking, whiskey drinking comedian and jokes were interchangeable, like different comedians could do the same joke. Yeah. Um, And then there was an era of uh, sort of counterculture comedy and it, it just made the old comedy look ridiculous, so... Uh, it was it, there was no way back. Yeah. So it does, and then there's there's people like Neil Hamburger who kind of went back in an ironic way and just made these kind of terrible jokes. Well, if we're gonna like look at what's happening now or what could happen, like you have, you know, like yeah, um, like Seinfeld represents the old way of comedy. Yeah, and even like Curb Your Enthusiasm is probably like old way. But there's like what's uh, who's the the comedian that does um, there's like Nathan for you and there's like um, mm. that other one. What's it called? Um, but Nathan for you is very close to Spinal Tap. Yeah, so Nathan for you is a good example for us to bring up as like contempt, yeah. like what's happened to that comedic format. Nathan for you, Canadian comedian, I'll just plug Canada. Um, 
but he does a show where he goes into help goes out and helps uh, entrepreneurs um in creative ways like be innovative to beat the competition but like (laughs) so good uh you know sometimes it's good sometimes it's cringeworthy for sure um i I like the pizza one what's that one well he's like um he starts to service the market pizza delivery, and he's like, if we're late, you'll get the second pizza for free. <laughs> right. But the second pizza is tiny. It's like two centimeters. <laughs> well, he also did the dumb Starbucks, um, yeah. which was the, uh, it made like national headlines. It also reminds me that. And the poop flavored ice cream. Poop flavored ice cream. So he did he, <laughs> a lot of these things that were made newsworthy. And now getting into, it's interesting because like. But it, it, is it is that for you interesting because you're in the world of business, but you also have a, a personality that is all about satire? Yeah, well, one of my favorite uh, groups when I was in school was a, an art artist collective called the Yes Men. And oh, yeah. the Yes Men managed to like impersonate the WHO and like do or like do like impersonate different sort they of infiltrated in, themselves into the media. Or wasn't the WHO the the uh, World Bank I think or something. But anyway, yeah, they they basically critique capitalism by impersonating the various figures within, you know, the basically the world of 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 like business and finance and and NGOs similar to Spinal Tap, right? Like so they they would like embody these different characters and it was both hilarious but also like a, an amazing takedown of power. Um, and it's, I guess it's different from Spinal Tap because Spinal Tap, in, you know, seems harmless. It doesn't really... What's funny about Spinal Tap is it starts as making fun of these very powerful bands because they're making fun of bands that are huge and uh, the big ego, the big mm-hmm. rock and roll giants. So then they became bigger than But then than they actually bands. became pretty famous and yeah. sell 400 million worth of merchandising. Yeah, so yeah. That's it. They're, they're in this weird hyper reality. Yeah. yeah. And I think that, you know, we were talking about just before the podcast, Borat kind of fell into a similar realm where uh, I remember, you know, reading interviews and, and seeing interviews with uh, Sasha Baron Cohen. And he's talking about how, well, what are you going to do next? He's like, well, I used to just like, you know, I was the producer on these films or I'd work with a producer and we would like set up these situations, which were not, you know, Spinal Tap you know, doesn't actually include any members of the regular public, but in, in like Borat or any of those Sasha Baron Cohen films, like he's he actually goes into public space, actually going into public space. Same thing with the yes men. And then, so what yeah. he said ended up happening is people started to recognize me and I couldn't do it anymore. But yeah, like, he kept changing it up. So he was Ali G and Borat and Bruno. And yeah. after a while, everybody just knows him. Yeah. And I think, um, that this probably what came out of Spinal Tap was this idea like how can we push it further? Let's push it out into the real world, and then once you push the satire and documentary mockumentary out into the real world, like like I had a warning like someone warned me when I was in school. They said to me, Jeremy, watch out! I've known this was another performance artist. They're like, I've I've seen a lot of people. <laughs> like get swallowed up by their the reality of their persona yeah and uh, i always think of jeff coons in that way yeah we talked about that right like um you go out with the satirical premise but then it actually become begins to define you and the world that you 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 can no longer tell the difference between reality and your comedy once you see someone through that lens then once you escape the character you're like oh that's even better you you've let go of your ego and and so they'll still still see you through the lens of satire, even though you're saying, "Oh, guys, software isn't everything. We should really reconnect as human beings." Oh, that's perfect. That's yeah, exactly yeah, what Jeremy yeah, like would it's say. It's impossible for me to get out of that trap. I mean, Andy Kaufman would have been probably the pioneer in this space prior to Spinal Tap, right? Like Andy Kaufman would get on, 
to like a late night show and he would, you know, sing Mighty Mouse or he would like just get angry and walk off set. And that was considered really avant-garde and uh, not even, and people were like, is he having a breakdown? I remember I did a show years ago uh, at iBeam in New York. Actually, Ryder was there. <laughs> Ryder was doing a giant mural of like fa- like Facebook or something. And I, I Facebook silhouettes. Yeah, Facebook silhouettes yeah. or something. It was huge. Um, but anyway, but we were like, like it's it was definitely a scene out of Spinal Tap. And then my performance was, I wrote software where the audience has to interact with me, and um, we're writing an email to my mother, but they're also waging a space war campaign, so they're committing genocide. And but they have to move around, and then I, progressively the performance is set up that I get angrier and angrier at the audience. I think I've told this story before, but the audience—I no, no, can't remember. Uh, okay, the audience actually took my anger sincerely, and they got—they started booing at me, <laughs> but not satirically. That like yeah. what ended up happening is people started like posting on social media that I was—I had had a mental breakdown on stage. And then I had to respond to those comments, and I didn't know if I should respond in character or not. That is really complicated exactly now, because everything's so tense and people's words are measured. Mm -hmm. So then if you're being satirical or ironic, it's very... People... the emotions are so high now, so it, it's a difficult time for comedy, I guess. Well, yeah, I mean, so I've had many of these situations over the course of my career where people actually interpreted my, my satire as reality and then thought I was a horrible person. And it's been really difficult because my premise is exactly the opposite, right? So um, I decided after that performance, by the way, as a rule, never insult your audience <laughs> like, directly. But there, there, there's also an interesting point. I think there was a lot of comedians right now that complain about political correctness on campuses and they don't want to perform in a college context and things like that. Mm-hmm. But it might also just be the reality that they're not that funny anymore to a younger audience. Yeah, or... or th- they're not relevant yeah. to their life and then they blame it on them being offended. But it's actually, it's like, oh, we don't want to hear these dad jokes. I think that's what's interesting about this movie, though, because it came out, it wasn't really like a huge success. And then over time, you know, it kind of aged well and people enjoyed the jokes yeah. more. That's relatively rare that that happens, right? Yeah, that's true. Um, I, I'm always amazed if a movie can be original when you think about how many people are involved in filmmaking. And so... I think when you have a big organization, you default to what works. So you think of uh, the Marvel franchise and you're like, okay, we've analyzed it. We'll we'll change it up a little bit, put some naughty jokes in uh, this movie and put some other elements in this movie. But overall, the the AI has analyzed it and this is the way we cut things and this is the way we do things. And and so to make a, a different movie seems like such an achievement. Yeah, actually, in this film, though, there was a producer, like, there were things they changed based on input from the studio. So, like, the girlfriend that comes in and kind of, like, you know, causes oh, a rift Yoko in the band. Ono. Yeah, <laughs> that was, like, something the studio asked for to add more plot to the film. So there'd be more of a narrative arc. It did. It, it did it's a good rock and roll cliche of some, some band member's <laughs> girlfriend wants to... Well, uh, I also love that she was like into the Zodiac and stuff. And <laughs> like that scene where they're like, she's like, I've redesigned your personas on stage, your, your costumes. And so now, you know, you're a cancer, so you're going to look like crap. <laughs> it's like, looks like this demented crap. It's like, and you know, so you're a Capricorn, so you're going to be a goat. And, yeah. and, and the guy's like, and Christopher Guest is like, is this a joke? And she's like, no, and no. You being a native English speaker, can you hear that? the uh, Americans doing a British accent? 
I mean, I'm British, but only by descent. Um, yeah. I thought they did a pretty good job. I, th- I they did, they do a better job than I could do. I, they don't sound I'm like my. I'm always shocked when I find out that you see big movies and you find out the lead actors are, are British. Yeah. Uh, like Star Wars or Batman. And when I found out Christian Bale is British, it's so weird <laughs> hearing him in interviews. Totally, totally. You're used to him as Patrick Bateman or Batman or whatever. And you're like, wait, that guy's just like from a working class neighborhood in London? And I saw an interview and I could really relate. He's like, yeah, I moved to L.A. Yeah. And I'm just used to walking over to someone's house, knocking on the door and saying, like, let's have a cup of tea. Yeah, and it's not done in LA. You have to announce yourself a week in advance, and that, well, think, that was a big transition for him. Yeah, the main thing I think in this one too is that they're so good. It, like everything is so in character. But apparently, I'd heard that like like they're they're so good at like consistency in character, right? Like all of the back, yeah. even, even the way they respond to one another, oh. and they have this very innocent response where they're really not aware that they did anything wrong. Yeah. So deadpan. I mean, we could do a whole podcast on that, but it's actually really hard. And sometimes, you know, I've, I'll perform and I've. I'll break character. I'm not, and I'm definitely not at the level of these guys, right? So, but like, um, breaking is like considered, you know, a sin. But it's also like, if you, it can also be really funny to break, um, like in a live context because everyone's waiting for it, right? Like, it's like yeah. everyone's yeah. waiting for that break. Apparently, I read though that these guys, um, like, were all friends, like Christopher Guest, um, Michael McKean, and and Harry Shearer, and they used to, specifically Guest and McKean. They used to go around to parties and they would do this. Um, this act together just at parties like they would just fall into character it was like a running joke for them yeah. and so I think like that's what you, you get the sense that there is the character there's some chemistry between the characters where it, it, did, where it so it's did, not when forced. we started this podcast was it hard for you to decide whether you'd be in character no well I think at the beginning we said we would try and do this um, for real like a sincere thing but do you no think if it had if we would have had a video podcast that you would have thought about it differently? Probably, yeah. Like, I, I so I had a rule, I've had a rule for many years of like, um, I won't appear in public, uh, not in character, if it's for art's sake. Like, and so I still follow that. I'll always wear so denim if, shorts. If you and a go to an opening in, in New York, you'd be in character? Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, and so I, yeah, I've never not appeared in character. If it's for an art, uh, audience um and i've done it yeah so that that's the that's the the situation you can't really i don't know i don't know how i'll do it any other way what's funny is like i fall into it's character funny you never chose a different name for your character you mean outside of famous new meteors yeah but you're still like oh that's jeremy so yeah well because it's a it's yeah. a joke about myself but i yeah, think yeah. um i did have another character who was a french version um just um Famous new media artist Jeremy Bailey, artist, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he, there's videos of me on YouTube in character as as him, and he's like he's very different. He's very resentful that he can't that no, more women don't like him, and that he's not uh, as famous as <laughs> as others, uh, and that his work is more famous than him. He's like really he's in a, a dark place. Yeah. <laughs> he's the opposite of. The character Stupid I normally Abramovich play. and way yeah. better. Yeah, exactly. That's his problem. He's quite depressed. He smokes a lot. Oh, that sucks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You hate smoking. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm happy you liked it. I was a little worried when I saw this. Like, oh, he's he's. Uh, there's too many offensive things in here. But uh, no, you don't have to worry. I, I mean, I think um, if if we're gonna yeah if we're gonna watch comedy, I can always find something interesting in comedy, even if it's bad comedy. I think because um, comedy is so hard to do, as we've talked about throughout this hour, 
it's really, really hard to do well. And then it's almost impossible to do over a long period of time. Like so often, um, I think you try and tell a joke, you, you try and tell the joke that you want the, you think the person wants to hear. And, um, and the thing you think you, they want, you want them to hear is based on some stereotype or some assumption that is absolutely not funny, you know? And so I think the subtle art of like comedy I've often talked about is not at the extremes. It's in the middle. It's like, Hmm. it's in between the words. It's like in a look or, um, it's in just a subtle exchange. And I think this movie has a lot of those, those experiences. That's kind of, you know, as a, as a, as a kind of, um, a jumping off point from our discussions regarding reality and, you know, sometimes I think that's where this film, you know, musicians have said, I didn't, I cry as much as I laugh. I think if you yeah. can, if you can ride that line, I think. Well, it's, yeah. If we watch the square next week, yeah, you'll recognize a lot of things. That movie's more about curators than artists, but it's still, um, it, it's, it, there's a lot of real issues that you think about all the time with your work that are in that movie. Great. Well, let's watch that. Um, yeah. But I guess that's it for for Spinal Tap for now. I, yeah. I would encourage people to check out the whole Christopher Guest catalog because um, he went on and did. I think probably best yeah, in, we, best we in show. Yeah, we should review a few of them in the future. Yeah, I think best yeah. in show is widely considered the the best film of uh, after post Spinal Tap that he did. Um, yeah, it's amazing to see them in interviews now though because they're all like in their sixties and seventies and but they, they you can still see the characters from Spinal I don't know it's Yeah, I remember the scene from Best in Show and there's these two sort of O C D control freak characters, a couple, and they're like, Yeah, I saw you at Starbucks and you had the same MacBook as I did. It's <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Okay. Yeah. Well anyway, um that's it for this week. And yeah. um yeah. So thanks for listening. We didn't get any field recordings. Uh, I assume we're gonna play, we're gonna play out this podcast with one of the Spinal Tap songs. I'll let you yeah, choose. Yeah, we'll put a little sex farm, little sex, <laughs> or like big bottoms. Uh, yeah, I think I don't know which is the top. If any of those charted, but they did eventually. What's the hit? Yeah. I mean, what rescues them in the end is one of their songs charts in Japan, "Sex Farm." Uh, <laughs> And so, yeah, when things don't work out, there's always Japan. Yeah, I thought that was like a very Raphael appropriate. It, it's yeah, it's still like it, out of anything, I'm so happy that I've been able to work in Japan, and it's still my dream one day to do a TV commercial in Japan. That seems like the mm. pinnacle of success. Yeah, like in um, in uh, Lost in Translation. Yeah, exactly. But if Whiskey. you look up, uh, James Brown has a bunch of funny ads in in Japan, and Arnold Schwarzenegger and. Yeah. Centauri whiskey. Wait, what, what is, what's yeah, the line? Well, it's like it, uh, James Brown has one where he has a miso soup song. Oh really? Oh yeah. You yeah. you'd want to do like a crazier one where yeah. you're jumping at the camera and being like fresh, super fresh. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. With all these animated characters. Cool. Okay. Right. Well, it sounds like it's Centauri time. Time to say good, good goodbye and have a whiskey. Um, but thanks for listening, everyone. Um, do do send in your ads. We do want to make sure that. Um, you've got yeah, something to talk about whatever you're doing yeah we're giving back so please let us know